In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Join us in this conversation as we discuss following Jesus, leadership, and doing life with others. Welcome to the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Mark Danza, your host today on the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast, and really excited today to talk about one of the tools that I have found really helpful when it comes to disciple making, and that is one particular chapter of the Bible called Romans 12. Now, if you, I ask this question to people all the time, but I want to ask it to you today. So if you had three years to invest your life spiritually in the life of someone else, what would you do? <laughs> That's a question we get a lot, and um, we have found that there are you know, a variety of things that someone could do to invest in someone spiritually to help them grow into maturity, but one of my go-to favorites, probably use this with every group I've ever discipled, is Romans chapter 12. It comes from a teaching that we got from Chip Ingram uh, called R12, and uh, it's got a great outline to it that I actually extend it to eight weeks. And so I have started so many groups with this this basic curriculum, uh, and and it's really about spiritual leadership. And so today I thought I'd introduce you to it, and maybe you're very familiar with it, then this will be a refresher course for you. Uh, but if you're new to this, um, then I hope that you'll take some notes because I think that you'll find this as useful, at least I hope you will, as I have. So the question is, why Romans chapter 12? Well, in this particular chapter, uh, Paul, uh, the, the author, of course, of, of the book of Romans, does something pretty amazing. Actually, Martin Luther said that Romans was the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. In other words, it kind of summarizes a lot of the basic theology of the Old Testament and New Testament in one particular place. It's an amazing writing. It's an amazing book. But Romans chapter 12, for me, is kind of the culmination of how Christians should respond to God. Now, Romans 5 through, through 8, of course, is the, the timeless work around the exchange life, and so there's a tremendous amount of time you could spend, and I do that in Romans 5 through 8. But Romans 12 is different. Romans 12 is basically answering the question of Romans 1 through 11. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, <laughs> Romans chapter 1 through 11 uh, is basically painting the picture of, look how good God has been to you. Look how good God has been to us. And so Romans uh, one through two, and this is just a basic fly-by summary here, so don't send me emails. <laughs> uh, basically, Romans one through two talks about the sinfulness of mankind. If you remember anything from those passages, you realize that you know man has fallen so short of the glory of God. And then Romans uh, three through seven focuses on the forgiveness of sin through Christ. And so you can see kind of how this setup goes. And then in Romans chapter eight, of course we see the freedom from sin's grasp. And so 9 and 11, Paul takes a little turn here, and he talks about Israel's past, present, and future. So Romans 1 through 11 is basically summarized by saying, look how good God has been to you. Look how far we had fallen, and God had reached down and picked us up. Look at how there's nothing that can separate us from God's love and that we're more than conquerors. And so this message of Romans 1 through 11 is so hopeful. 
But we can't just say, thank you very much, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Now we're going to go live about our life, and uh, we'll call you if we need you. That's not the point. Because in Romans 12, it starts with a very interesting word. Verse 1 says, therefore. Now, I love that word. If you've ever been in one of my groups or sat under my teaching, you, you know I love that word. It's a hinge word. Basically, it's saying what's about to come is important, but what we just said is also vitally important. And so Paul starts this teaching with, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so this invitation to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. The word living sacrifice there would have been a head-scratcher for people in that day because they understood sacrifices. I mean, we understand sacrifices too. You know, if you've ever had to sit through a piano recital, you, you get it. But now seriously, like animal sacrifices, people knew that if you're going to worship God, if you were going to have God's favor on your life, it was going to cost you something. But a sacrifice usually meant that something had to die. Of course, Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice. But in this particular passage, Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, it's the sacrifice that continues to go, continues to thrive, continues to live. You know, our life is God's gift to us, but our life back is is our gift to God. And so we are um, offering ourselves as living sacrifices sacrifices. So basically, you could say in verse 1, if we're going to do a a five-point outline here, and they all start with S words, so it's going to be easy to remember. (laughs) Verse 1 is basically about being surrendered to God. Now, surrender is a tough word, especially for men. Uh, Men, anytime you hear the word surrender, it basically sounds like forfeit or quit or defeated, and that's partially true. In other words, there's only two reasons that a man will surrender and that is if he's completely defeated or if he's completely loved. Now think about the, um, the story of Abraham for a moment when it comes to surrender. Uh, God had called Abraham and had gifted him a son and kept his promise, and yet at some point God was asked to sacrifice that son. Now thank God we have retrospect to know that it didn't, it didn't have to happen that way. Abraham never really sacrificed Isaac, but he was willing to. And that is surrender. When we lay the things that are the most important on the altar of God, sometimes the very gifts of God, that surrender is evidence of our love for the Lord. And it's also vitally important to what Paul's telling us here in this passage is, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, do you see that? In view of God's mercy. In other words, in rear view, verses chapters 1 through 11, Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He's basically saying here, going to church and raising your hands and participating in a service is what we call worship, but (laughs) there's probably more to it, and we're going to see a little bit more about what that is. So if you were taking Romans chapter 12, and you were breaking it down into five basic parts, the first part would be surrendered to God. Let me ask you a question. What is God asking you to surrender? What is God asking you to lay down and to give up on? I I don't know, and I don't even want to um, speculate on what that might be, 
But if God is asking you to surrender something, it's because he has something better in mind. So I would encourage you to do it. Surrender to God. Romans 1 through 11 tells us, look how good God has been to you. And now here is what we as disciples of Jesus are to do with the rest of our life. And it starts with surrender. Interesting uh, verse is verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, and it reads this way. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In all the counseling and coaching that I do, this verse guides me because it tells us that the assumption is being made that we are following the patterns of this world. We have been conformed to the thinking of the world, and we know that God doesn't think that way. So instead of asking God to come down here and just get culturally relevant for a minute, (laughs) we are to be separate from the world, verse 2. And so the first thing is surrender to God. The second part of this five-point outline is separate from the world. He says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. In other words, the things that this world is after, we as believers are not chasing. The, thing that excites, uh, the things that excite the world are not the things that excite Christians. Or the things that frustrate the world are not the things that frustrate Christians. No, no. We are no longer being conformed to the pattern of this world. Why? But we're being changed from the inside out. We're being transformed. The word there is metamorphi. Picture the chrysalis, the, the caterpillar that turns into the butterfly. You'd never see the butterfly flying around looking down at the ground going, man, I wish I could be a caterpillar again. <laughs> no, no, he's been transformed. And so are we by the renewing of our mind. Now, the mind is an interesting thing. And Paul is conf- uh, encouraging us here this morning that we should be transformed transformed. How? By renewing our mind, the things our mind thinks about, the things we dwell upon, the things we focus on, the things we uh, retain, the things we listen to. All of this has a way of transforming our mind. And if they're godly, they're going to transform us away from the patterns of this world. Isn't that wonderful news? That our minds could be renewed? In the psychology world, they call this neuroplasticity that the mind can be changed, can be rewired, so to speak. And this is nothing new. This is 2,000-year-old wisdom here. So in what ways is God renewing your mind? Don't focus on the transformation. Focus on the mind renewal, because transformation comes as we renew our mind. If you're a pessimist and you see the, uh, the glasses always half empty, or if you uh, have this hypervigilance that the sky is falling and the stock market's crashing and the government's going to pot and all of this stuff, if that's what consumes you, then your mind is not being renewed. No. Focus on the things of God, scriptures, prayers, songs, meditations, and focus on this every day and allow the Lord to renew your mind. And when he does, oh my, you will be transformed according to to this verse. It goes on to say, and then you'll know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I'm not going to get into a teaching on the differences between those three today, 
But basically what it's saying is, is the, the more our mind is conform, uh, transformed, the more our mind is renewed, the less we're conforming to the old patterns of this world some of us have been living in for a long time. Oh, man. Then we'll know what God is calling us to do, wants us to do. And so this second verse here really outlined is be separate from the world. If our lifestyle and our language looks exactly like the world, something's wrong. We're being called to be separate. Now, it doesn't mean to be constantly offensive or just plain out weird. (laughs) No, it means to be, that our life looks different, sounds different, enough to create curiosity in people so that they'll want to know what we've got. And when they want to know what you got, well, then you can give it to them. It's Jesus. And so when you think of some biblical personalities, so to speak, when it comes to being separate from the world, think about Daniel. I always think about Daniel in that culture, not bowing, not bowing to the, to the government or bowing to the gods. You should go back and read that, of how he had a strong backbone when it came to what his beliefs in God were. And God honored him. History records that. So the five-point outline here of Romans chapter 12 is first, surrendered to God. Second is separate from the world, verse 2. But then we get into this section here of verses 3 through 8. And here we're going to take a sober self-assessment. Let me read it to us this morning. Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, well, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, well, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, then let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, well, let him do it cheerfully. This section here is really focused on a sober self-assessment. Who is it that God has wired you to be? What giftings do you have? How is it that God could use you to build up the body of Christ. Now, don't let that scare you. It doesn't mean he's calling everybody to be a pastor or a missionary, but he's calling all of us to contribute in some way. And that's what this section is all about. As a believer in Jesus, you should be a producer, not just a consumer. And it first starts with taking a sober self-assessment. I mean, really, what is it? God, I'm not talking about what are you scared of. What has God really called you to do? Think about Moses for a second from the Old Testament. <laughs> the reluctant warrior, right? I mean, reluctant. When God called him to do something, he tried to stutter himself right out of it. He came up with every excuse imaginable, but yet in the end, he followed God's plan, and history bears the truth. He was a great leader, a dynamic leader, a forerunner of Christ. But he was reluctant. So don't let that hesitancy in you as you take this sober self-assessment of what is it that God's really wired me to do? What has God really called me to do? And how can I roll up my sleeves and get on with it? Well, this is what this sober self-assessment's 
all about. So you see in verse 1, we're surrendered to God. In verse 2, we're separate from the world. Verses 3 through 8, we've got this sober self-assessment, and sometimes we need somebody to come alongside of us to give us a true assessment. The fourth aspect of this is verses 9 through 13, and it's serving in love. Now, when we think of serving, do you always think of it in love? Well, verses 9 through 13 read this way. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keeping your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. This section is focused on serving in love. Well, when you look at Romans 1 through 11 and you go, man, God has been so good to us. Here's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to be surrendered to God, separate from the world, take a sober self-assessment, and I'm going to serve in love. Now, when you think about this and you think about who is it that you have witnessed in your life that just served out of a heart of love. In other words, love and compassion was the fuel in their tank. Well, there's many people in history that we can think of, of course. But who do you think of? I mean, really, when you think about what they have done with their life and how they serve in love, just think for a second of a few characteristics of how they've done that. Write them down and live that out yourself. And who knows, if you've got the opportunity, maybe even send them a card or a note or an email or something and just thank them for how their serving in love has been an example for you. And allow the Lord to use you as a servant in love. Think about Christ come, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Oh my, we have no greater example than the example of Christ. But you and I have had people in our life that we have seen serve in love, and may they be an example to us today. Well, the fifth one is supernaturally responding to evil with good, verses 14 through 21. In other words, this world is full of evil. There are people that are intent on hurting other people, taking from other people, that are living under the influence of evil. And I don't think God ever sees people as evil I think he sees them captured by evil. But nevertheless, this world can be a hard, cruel, evil place. And Christians have an ability to respond to that. And Romans chapters 12, verses 14 through 21, is imploring us to respond to evil with good. Here, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Now, all kinds of imagery are conjured up when we read this. But basically what it's saying is, is that as a Christian, we are to respond to the evil of this world in a very different way. I mean, Jesus was the one who said, pray for your enemies, love your enemies. And Paul is just continuing to compound upon that same message. What do you do when someone has done you wrong? How do you respond? Do you take revenge? I think basically the majority of this section could be summed up with, don't take revenge. Now, I just ruined the plot for every Clint Eastwood movie, I know. (laughs) Seems like every one of his movies is, somebody got him and he's going to get him back. But you know, there's a lot of folks out there that live by that Clint Eastwood theology. It's just not the best way to go. In other words, Paul is telling us this morning, leave room for God to work. I'm often thought of the story where a man was uh, done wrong by someone else, and instead of just praying about that and allowing the Lord to deal with it, he jumped in there and tried to take revenge himself. Well, what he came up with was not, not nearly as effective as what the Lord already had planned. But since he had gone in and filled that space, God allowed him to do so. But you know, there's a better way. A better way is to allow the Lord to work. God has the big picture in mind. He sees the end from the beginning. And when God sets things right, they're really right. But for you and I, we're admonished here in verse 21 to don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life as you're hearing this today. And this section of scripture may be the most challenging thing you've ever heard would be to forgive that wrong or to let go of that anger that you're holding towards someone, or the, to declare the injustice that's been done to you. But think about it for a minute. Have you ever done injustice to someone else? Well, if you've lived longer than a month, you probably have. I know I have. And so this outline here, as lofty as it sounds, is what Paul is encouraging the, Christ, the Christians, the believers to do, to live this model lifestyle Listen, Romans 1 through 11, he paints a big picture of how good and merciful God's been to us. And based on that fact, here's how we should live. Verse 1, surrendered to God. Verse 2, separate from the world. Verses 3 through 8, with a sober self-assessment. Verses 9 through 13, serving in love. And verses 14 through 21, supernaturally responding to evil with good. Those of you who have children, you know that you have a dream for their life. And the dream is for them to prosper and to be blessed and to be happy and successful and to walk with God and all those things that we hope for. But God has a bigger plan, a better plan. You know, just as you have a dream for your children, God has a dream for you. And this is God's dream, that you'd not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but you'd be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you would live out this way because this is God's big agenda. This is what it means to live Christ-like. So I hope that you're encouraged by this passage of Scripture this morning. There's a much deeper dive here uh, that we'll go into in a later date. Uh, But for now, just be encouraged. And if you're looking for something to do with your discipleship group or maybe even looking to start a group and you're wondering where to start, I would encourage this one. Now, you can find this outline and these teachings and all of this on uh, 419disciplemakers.com, and it is uh, 
it's under R12, True Spirituality. There's a leader's guide. There's a participant's guide. And in the weeks ahead, and maybe in the new year, we're gonna, we'll do a deeper teaching on this section for you. Uh, and hopefully you'll find it, find it helpful. Until then, continue to live out the Great Commission as a lifestyle. Continue to invite people to this podcast. And may you be blessed. For more information, check out our website, 419disciplemakers.org. 